Part 3. The Effects of the Superstition Effects of the Myth Throughout the ages, human beings have clung to all sorts of superstitions and false assumptions, many of them relatively harmless. For example, when most people believed the earth to be flat, that factually incorrect notion had little or no impact on how people lived their daily lives or how they treated one another. Likewise, if children believed in the tooth fairy or that storks delivered babies, they are not going to become purveyors of evil as a result of accepting such myths. On the other hand, over the years, other false assumptions and myths have posed real dangers to humanity. It could be a simple misunderstanding among doctors, which led them to try cures that posed a bigger threat to their patients than the maladies that they were trying to treat. As a more drastic example, some cultures offered up human sacrifices in the hope that doing so would win the favor of their imaginary gods. But nothing else comes close to the level of destruction, mental, emotional, and physical, that has occurred throughout the world and throughout recorded history as a result of the belief in authority. By dramatically altering how people perceive the world, the myth of authority alters their thoughts and actions as well. In fact, the belief in the legitimacy of a ruling class, government, leads nearly everyone to either condone or commit acts of evil without even realizing it. Having been convinced that authority is real, and that, by the way of it, some human beings have acquired the moral right to initiate violence and commit acts of aggression against others by way of so-called laws. Every Democrat, every Republican, every voter, and everyone else who advocates government in any form is a proponent of violence and injustice. Of course, they do not see it that way because their belief in authority has warped and perverted their perception of reality. The trouble is that when something alters a person's perception of reality, the person rarely notices it happening. For example, the world might look very different to someone wearing colored contact lenses. Even though he cannot see the lenses themselves, the same is true of mental lenses. Each person thinks that the world is really the way he sees it. Everyone can point to others and claim that they are out of touch with reality. But almost no one thinks that his own perception is skewed, even when others tell him so. The result is billions of people pointing fingers at each other, telling each other how delusional and misguided they are, with almost none of them willing or even able to honestly examine the mental lenses that distort their own perceptions. Everything a person has been exposed to, especially when young, has an impact on how he views the world what his parents taught him, what he learned in school, how he has seen people behaving, the culture he grew up in, the religion he was raised in, all create a long-lasting set of mental lenses that affect how he sees the world. There are countless examples of how mere differences in perspective have led to horrendous consequences. A suicide bomber who intentionally kills civilians imagines that he is doing the right thing. Nearly everyone on both sides of every war imagines himself to be in the right. No one imagines himself to be the bad guy. Military conflicts are entirely the result of differences in perspective resulting from mental lenses that have been trained into soldiers on both sides. It should be self-evident that if thousands of basically good people were all seeing the world as it is, they would not be desperately trying to kill each other. In most cases, the problem is not actual evil or malice, but simply an inability to see things as they are. Consider, as an analogy, someone who has ingested a strong hallucinogen and who, as a result, becomes convinced that his best friend is really a malicious alien monster in disguise. From the perspective of the one having hallucinations, violently attacking his friend is perfectly reasonable and justified. The problem, in the case of one whose perception of reality has been so distorted, is not that he is immoral, or that he is stupid, or that he is malicious. The problem is that he is just not seeing things as they actually are, and as a result, decisions and actions which seem perfectly appropriate to him are, 
in reality, horribly destructive. And when such a hallucination is shared by many, the results become far worse. When everyone has the same misperception of reality, when everyone believes something untrue, even something patently absurd, it doesn't feel untrue or absurd to them. When a false or illogical idea is constantly repeated and reinforced by nearly everyone, it rarely occurs to anyone to even begin to question it. In fact, most people become literally incapable of questioning it, because over time it becomes solidified in their minds as a given, an assumption that doesn't need a rational basis and doesn't need to be analyzed or reconsidered, because everyone knows it to be true. In reality, however, each person simply assumes it to be true, because he cannot imagine that everyone else, including all the respectable, well-known, educated people on radio and TV, could all believe something false. What business does one average individual have doubting something which everyone else seems perfectly comfortable accepting as indisputable truth? Such a deeply entrenched belief is invisible to those who believe it. When a mind has always thought of something in one way, that mind will imagine evidence and hallucinate experience supporting the idea. A thousand years ago, people would have confidently proclaimed that it was a proven fact that the earth was flat, and they would have said it with just as much certainty and honesty as we now proclaim it to be round. To them, the idea of the world being a giant spherical thing, floating around in space and attached to nothing, was patently ridiculous, and their utterly false assumption about the world being flat would have seemed to them to be a scientific, self-evident fact. So it is with the belief in authority and government. To most people, government feels like an obvious reality, as rational and self-evident as gravity. Few people have ever objectively examined the concept, because they have never had a reason to. Everyone knows that government is real, and necessary, and legitimate, and unavoidable. Everyone assumes that it is, and talks as if it is, so why would anyone question it? Not only are people rarely given a reason to examine the concept of government, but they have a very compelling psychological incentive to not examine it. It is exceedingly uncomfortable and disturbing, even existentially terrifying, for someone to call into question one of the bedrock assumptions upon which his entire view of reality, his entire moral code, has been based on for all of his life one whose perception and judgment has been distorted by the superstition of authority, and that describes nearly everyone, will not find it easy or pleasant to contemplate the possibility that his entire belief system is based upon a lie, and much of what he has done throughout his life, as a result of believing that lie, has been harmful to himself, his friends and family, and humanity in general. In short, the belief in authority and government warps the perception of almost every person, skews his judgment, and leads him to say and do things which are often irrational, or pointless, or counterproductive, or hypocritical, or even horribly destructive and heinously evil. Of course, the believers in the myth do not see it that way, because they do not see it as a belief at all. They are firmly convinced that authority is real, and based on that false assumption, conclude that their resulting perceptions, thoughts, opinions, and actions are perfectly reasonable, justifiable, and proper. Just as the Aztecs no doubt believed their human sacrifices to be reasonable, justifiable, and proper. A superstition capable of making otherwise decent people view good as evil, and evil as good, which is exactly what the belief in authority does, is what poses the real threat to humanity. The superstition of authority affects the perceptions and actions of different people in different ways, whether it be lawmakers that imagine themselves to have the right to rule, the law enforcers who imagine themselves to have the right and obligation to enforce the commands of the lawmakers, the subjects who imagine themselves to have the moral duty to obey, or mere spectators looking on as neutral observers. The effect of the belief in authority on these various groups 
when taken together, lead to a degree of oppression, injustice, theft, and murder which simply could not and would not otherwise exist. Part 3a. The Effects on the Masters. The Divine Right of Politicians. In this country, at the top of the gang called government, are the congressmen, presidents, and judges. In other countries, the rulers are known by other names, such as kings, emperors, or members of parliament. And though they are at the top of the authoritarian organization, they are not perceived to be authority itself, the way kings used to be. They are still imagined to be acting on behalf of something other than themselves, some abstract entity called government. As a result of the belief in authority, they are imagined to have rights to do things in the name of government that none of them have the right to do as individuals. The legitimacy of their actions is measured not by what they do, but how they do it. In most people's eyes, the actions that politicians take in their own official capacity and the commands they issue by way of the accepted political rituals are judged by very different standards than are the actions as private individuals. If a congressman breaks into his neighbor's home and takes a thousand dollars, he is seen as a criminal. If, on the other hand, together with his fellow politicians, he imposes a tax demanding the same thousand dollars from the same neighbor, it is seen as legitimate. What would have been armed robbery would then be viewed by almost everyone as legitimate taxation. Not only would the congressman not be viewed as a crook, but any tax cheats who resisted his extortionist demands would be considered the criminals. But the belief in authority not only changes how lawmakers are viewed by the masses, it also changes how lawmakers view themselves. It should be obvious if a person becomes convinced that he has the moral right to rule over others, that belief will have a significant effect upon his behavior. If he believes that he has the right to demand a portion of everyone's income, under the threat of punishment, provided he does it through accepted legal procedures, he will almost certainly do so. If he is convinced that he has the right to coercively control the decisions of his neighbors, that it is moral and legitimate for him to do so, he most certainly will. And, at least at first, he may even do so with the best of intentions. A simple mental exercise gives a glimpse into how and why politicians act the way they do. Think about what you would do if you were made king of the world, if you were in charge. How would you improve things? Consider the question carefully before reading on. When asked what they would do if they were in charge, almost no one answers, I would just leave people alone. Instead, most people start imagining the ways in which they could use the ability to control people as a tool for good, for the betterment of mankind. If one starts with the assumption that such control can be legitimate and righteous, the possibilities are nearly endless. One could make a healthier country by forcing people to eat more nutritious foods and exercise regularly. One could help the poor by forcing the rich to give them money. One could make people safer by forcing them to pay for a strong system of defense. One could make things more equitable and society more compassionate by forcing people to behave in the way they should. However, while many positive benefits for society can be imagined, if only government power were used for good, the potential for tyranny and oppression, in fact, the inevitability of tyranny and oppression, is just as easy to imagine. Once someone believes himself to have the right to control others, there is little likelihood that he will choose not to use that power. And whatever noble intentions he may have had to begin with, what he will actually end up doing is using violence, and the threat of violence, to impose his will upon others. Even seemingly benevolent causes like giving to the poor first require government to forcibly take wealth from another. Once someone, however virtuous and well-intended he may be, has accepted the premise that legal aggression is legitimate, and once he has been given the reins of power and with them the supposed right to rule, the chances of that person choosing not to forcibly control his neighbors is almost none. The level of coercion and violence he inflicts upon others may vary, but he will become a tyrant, to one degree or another, 
Because once someone truly believes that he has the right to rule, even if only in a limited manner, he will not view others or treat others as equals. He will view them and treat them as subjects, and that is if the person started with good intentions. Many of those who seek high office do it purely for selfish reasons from the start, because they desire wealth and power for themselves and delight in dominating other people. Of course, acquiring a position of authority is, for such people, a means of achieving an enormous amount of power that they would not otherwise have. The examples throughout the world and throughout history of megalomaniacs using the facade of authority to commit heinous atrocities are so common and well-known that they hardly require mentioning at all. Putting evil people into positions of authority, e.g. Stalin, Lenin, Mao, Hitler, Mussolini, Pol Pot, has resulted in the robbery, assault, harassment, terrorization, torture, and outright murder of a nearly incomprehensible number of human beings. It is so obvious that it is almost silly to even say it. Giving power to bad people poses a danger to humanity, but giving power to good people, people who, at least initially, intended to use their power for good, can be just as dangerous. Because for one to believe that he has the right to rule necessarily requires him to believe that he is exempt from basic morality. When someone imagines himself to be a legitimate lawmaker, he will try to use the force of law to control his neighbors and will feel no guilt while doing so. Ironically, though lawmakers are at the very top of authoritarian hierarchy, even they do not accept personal responsibility for what government does. Even they speak as if the law is something other than the commands they issue. For example, it is very unlikely that any politician would feel justified hiring armed thugs to invade his neighbor's home and drag his neighbor away and put him in a cage for the supposed sin of smoking marijuana. Yet many politicians have advocated exactly that, via anti-drug legislation. They seem to feel no shame or guilt regarding the fact that their legislation has resulted in millions of non-violent people being forcibly taken from their friends and families and made to live in cages for years on end, sometimes for the rest of their lives. When they speak of the acts of violence which they are directly responsible for, and narcotics laws are only one example, legislators use such terms as law of the land as if they themselves are mere spectators and the land or the country or the people were the ones who made such violence occur. Indeed, the politician's level of psychological detachment from what they have personally and directly caused via their laws borders on insanity. They command armies of tax collectors to forcibly confiscate the wealth earned by hundreds of millions of people. They enact one intrusive law after another, using threats of violence to control every aspect of the lives of millions of people they have never met and know nothing about, and after they have been directly responsible for initiating violence on a regular basis against nearly everyone living within hundreds of thousands of miles of them, they are generally shocked and offended if one of their victims threatens to use violence against them. They consider it despicable for a mere peasant to even threaten to do what they, the politicians, due to millions of people every day. At the same time, they do not even seem to notice the millions of people who are imprisoned, those whose property is stolen, whose financial lives are ruined, whose freedom and dignity are assaulted, who are harassed, attacked, and sometimes murdered by government thugs, as a direct result of the very laws those politicians created. When young men and women are dying by the thousands, in the latest war game waged by politicians, the politicians speak of it as a sacrifice for freedom, when it is nothing of the sort. The politicians even use scenes of soldiers in caskets, a consequence directly attributed to what those politicians did, as photo ops, to show the public how concerned and compassionate they are. The very people who sent the young folk off to kill or to die then speak about what happened as if they themselves were mere observers, saying things like, they died for their country, and there are casualties in every war, as if the war just happened by itself, and, of course, the thousands upon thousands of people on the other side 
the subjects of some other authority, the citizens of some other country, who are killed in wars waged by politicians, are barely even mentioned. They are an occasional statistic reported on the evening news, and never do the politicians accept the smallest shred of responsibility for the widespread, large-scale prolonged pain and suffering, mental and physical, which their warmongering has inflicted upon thousands or millions of human beings. Again, the depth of their denial and complete evasion of personal responsibility can be seen in the fact that if one of the victims of the politician's war games decides to attack the source, by directly targeting the ones who gave the orders to attack, all of the politicians, even those claiming to be against the war, and all of the talking heads on television express shock and outrage that anyone would do something so despicable. This is because, in the eyes of the lawmakers, due to the amazing power of the authority myth to completely warp and distort their perception of reality, when they do things which result in the deaths of thousands of innocents, that is the unfortunate cost of war. But when one of their victims tries to strike back at the source, it is terrorism. It is bad enough for those who are just obeying orders to deny personal responsibility for their actions, which is addressed below. But for those actually giving the orders and making up the orders, to deny any responsibility for what their orders directly caused to happen is sheer lunacy. Yet, that is what lawmakers always do, on every level, whether it is the federal government or some local township or borough council. Every time a legislator imposes a tax on something or imposes some new legal restriction, the politicians are using the threat of violence to control people. But due to their undying faith in the myth of authority, they cannot see that that is what they are doing, and they never take personal responsibility for having threatened and extorted their neighbors. Part 3b. The Effects on the Enforcers Following Orders The lawmakers give the commands, but it is their faithful enforcers who carry them out. Millions upon millions of otherwise decent, civilized people spend day after day harassing, threatening, extorting, controlling, and otherwise oppressing others who have not harmed or threatened anyone. But because the actions of such law enforcers are deemed legal, and because they believe they are acting on behalf of authority, they imagine themselves to bear no responsibility for their actions. In fact, they do not even view their own actions as being their own actions. They speak and act as if their minds and bodies have somehow been taken over by some invisible entity called the law or government. They say things like, Hey, I don't make the laws. I just enforce them. It's not up to me. They speak and act as if it is impossible for them to do anything other than helplessly carry out the will of a power called authority, and they are therefore no more personally responsible for their actions then a puppet is responsible for what the puppeteer makes it do. When acting in their official capacity, while seemingly helplessly possessed by the spirit of authority, law enforcers behave in ways which they never otherwise would and do things that they themselves would recognize as uncivilized, violent, and evil if they did such things on their own, without an authority telling them to. Examples of this occur all over the world every hour of every day, in a wide variety of ways. A soldier might shoot a complete stranger, whose only sin was to be out walking in a military-occupied zone after a declared curfew. A group of heavily armed men might kick down someone's door and drag him away, or shoot a man in front of his wife and children, because the man grew a plant which politicians proclaimed to be forbidden, illegal. A bureaucrat, might file paperwork instructing a financial institution to take thousands of dollars out of someone's bank account in the name of tax collection. Another bureaucrat may send in armed thugs upon finding out that someone had the gall to build a deck on his own property, with the approval of his neighbors, but without a government approval in the form of a building permit. A traffic cop may stop and extort someone, via a ticket, for having a broken taillight. A TSA agent may frisk someone 
and rummaging through his personal belongings without the slightest reason to suspect the person has done, or is going to do, anything wrong. A judge may direct armed thugs to put someone in a cage for weeks, months, or years, for anything from showing contempt for the judge, to driving without the written permission of politicians, in the form of a driver's license, to having engaged in any type of mutually voluntary but non-politician-sanctioned illegal commerce. These examples, and literally millions of others which could be given, are acts of aggression committed by perpetrators who would not have committed them if they had not been directed to do so by a perceived authority. In short, most instances of theft, assault, and murder happen only because authority told someone to steal, attack, or kill. Most of the time, the people who carry out such orders would not have committed such crimes on their own. Of the 100,000 people who work for the Internal Revenue Service, how many engaged in harassment, extortion and theft, before becoming IRS agents? Few, if any. How many soldiers went around harassing, threatening, or killing people they did not know before joining the military? Few, if any. How many police officers regularly went around stopping, interrogating, and kidnapping nonviolent people before becoming law enforcers? Very few. How many judges had people thrown into cages for nonviolent behavior before becoming appointed to a court? Probably none. When such acts of aggression become legal and are done in the name of law enforcement, those who commit them imagine such acts to be inherently legitimate and valid, even though they recognize that, had they committed the very same acts on their own, instead of on behalf of authority, the acts would have constituted crimes and would have been immoral. While there are obviously more significant and less significant cogs in the wheels of the government machine, from the low-level paper pushers to the armed mercenaries, they all have two things in common. First, they inflict unpleasantness on others in a way they would not have done on their own. And second, they accept no personal responsibility for their actions while in law enforcer mode. Nothing makes this more obvious than the fact that, when the properness or morality of their actions is called into question, their response is almost always some variation of, I'm just doing my job. The obvious implication in such statements is this. I am not responsible for my actions, because authority told me to do this. The only way that makes a shred of sense is if the person is literally incapable of refusing to do something a perceived authority tells him to do. Unfortunately, the horrific truth is that most people, as a result of their authoritarian indoctrination, do seem to be psychologically incapable of disobeying the commands of an imagined authority. Most people, given the choice between doing what they know is right and doing what they know is wrong when ordered to do so by a perceived authority, will do the latter. Nothing demonstrates this more clearly than the results of the psychology experiments done by Dr. Stanley Milgram in the 1960s. The Milgram Experiments In brief, the Milgram studies were designed to determine to what degree ordinary people would inflict pain upon strangers simply because an authority figure told them to. For the complete description of the experiments and the results, see Dr. Milgram's book, Obedience to Authority. The following is a short synopsis of his experiments and findings. The subjects were asked to volunteer for what they were told was an experiment testing human memory. Under the supervision of a scientist, the authority figure, one person was strapped into a chair and wired with electrodes, and the other, the actual subject of the study, sat in front of a shock-generating machine. The person in front of the zapper machine was told that the goal was to test whether shocking the other person when he gave the wrong answer to a memorized question would affect his ability to remember things. The true goal, however, was to test to what degree the person in front of the zapper machine would inflict pain on an innocent stranger 
simply because a perceived authority told him to. The zapper machine had a series of switches, going up to 450 volts, and the zapper was supposed to increase the voltage and administer another shock each time the zappy got an answer wrong. The zappy in the test was actually an actor who was not being shocked at all, but at given voltage levels would give out shouts of pain, protests about heart troubles, demands to stop the experiment, screams for mercy, and eventually silence, feigning unconsciousness or death. And the zapper machine was clearly marked with danger labels at the upper end of the series of switches. The result of the experiment shocked even Dr. Milgram. In short, a significant majority of subjects, nearly two out of three, continued through the experiment right to the end, inflicting what they thought were excruciatingly painful, if not lethal, shocks to a complete stranger. Despite the screams of agony, the cries for mercy, even the unconsciousness or death of the pretending victim. Dr. Milgram himself succinctly sums up the conclusion to be reached. With numbing regularity, good people were seen to knuckle under the demands of authority and perform actions that were callous and severe. A substantial portion of people do what they are told to do, irrespective of the content of the act and without limitations of conscience so long as they perceive that the command comes from a legitimate authority. Of note, in the experiments, there was no threat that the zapper would be punished for failure to obey, nor was there any special reward promised for obedience. So the findings were not the result of someone harming someone else in order to save his own neck, or in order to otherwise profit himself. Instead, the results demonstrate that even absence of any promise of reward or punishment, the average person will inflict excruciating pain, even death, upon an innocent stranger for no other reason than that he was told to do so by a perceived authority. This point cannot be overstressed. There is a particular belief that leads basically good people to do bad things, even horrendously evil things, even the atrocities of Hitler's Third Reich were the result not of millions of evil people, but of a very small handful of truly evil people who had acquired positions of authority, and millions of obedient people who merely did what the perceived authority told them to do. In her book about Hitler's top bureaucrat, Adolf Eichmann, sometimes called the architect of the Holocaust, author Hannah Arendt used the phrase, the banality of evil to refer to the fact that most of evil is not the result of personal malice or hatred, but merely the result of blind obedience, individuals giving up their own free will and judgment in favor of unthinking subservience to an imagined authority. Interestingly, both Arendt's book and Dr. Milgram's experiments offended a lot of people. The reason is simple. People who have been taught to respect authority and have been taught that obedience is a virtue and cooperating with authority is what makes us civilized, do not want to hear the truth, which is that truly evil people, with all their malice and hatred, pose far less a threat to mankind than the basically good people who believe in authority. Anyone who honestly examines the results of Dr. Milgram's experiments cannot escape that fact. But aside from the general lessons to be learned from the Milgram experiments, that most people will intentionally hurt other people if a perceived authority tells them to, several other findings from Milgram's work are worth noting. First, many of the subjects of the experiments showed signs of stress, guilt, and anguish while inflicting pain on others, and yet continued to do so. This fact demonstrates these were not simply nasty sadists waiting for an excuse to hurt others. They did not enjoy doing it. Furthermore, it shows that the people knew that they were doing something wrong, and did it anyway because authority told them to. Some subjects protested, begged to be allowed to stop, trembled uncontrollably, even cried, and yet most continued to the end of the experiment. The conclusion could hardly be more obvious. The belief in authority makes good people commit evil. Second, the subject's income level, education level, age, sex, 
and other demographic factors seem to have little or no influence on the results. Statistically speaking, a rich, cultured, educated young woman will obey an authoritarian command to hurt someone else just as readily as an illiterate, poor male manual laborer will. The one common factor shared by all of those who continued to the end of the experiment is that they believed in authority, obviously. Again, the message to be learned, however troubling it may be, is logically inescapable. Regardless of almost any other factors, the belief in authority turns good people into agents of evil. Third, the average person, when the experiment is described to him, not including the results, guesses that the compassion and the conscience of most people would prevent them from continuing through the entire experiment. Professional psychiatrists predicted that only about one in a thousand would obey to the end of the experiment, when in reality it was about 65%, and when the average person, who was not actually being tested, is asked if he personally would have gone to the end of the study if he had been tested, he usually insists that he would not have, yet the majority do. Again, the message is troubling but indisputable. Almost everyone hugely underestimates the degree to which the belief in authority, even in himself, can be used to persuade good people to commit evil. And fourth, Dr. Milgram also found that some test subjects, defying all reason, were determined to blame the results of their own blind obedience on the victim, the one being shocked. In other words, through whatever twisted mentality it took, some of those doing the shocking imagined that the one being shocked was somehow to blame for his own suffering. With that in mind, it should come to no surprise that when police officers are caught assaulting innocent victims, or when soldiers are caught terrorizing or murdering civilians, or when prison guards are caught torturing prisoners, their defense is often to blame the victim, no matter how much the authoritarian aggressors have to mangle the truth and logic in order to do so. Interestingly, even though at the Nuremberg trials, just following orders was not accepted as a valid excuse for what the Nazis did, it is still a standard response from soldiers, police, tax collectors, bureaucrats, and other agents of authority whenever the morality of their behavior is questioned. In the Milgram experiments, and in countless real-life abuses of power, those who initially hurt others simply fall back on the standard excuse, claiming that they were not personally responsible because they were merely following orders. In the Milgram experiments, several subjects even directly asked the authority figure which one of them was responsible for what was happening. When the authority figure said that he was the one responsible, most subjects went on without further debate, apparently comfortable with the notion that whatever happened from then on was not their fault and they would not be held liable. Again, the message is difficult to escape. The belief in authority allows basically good people to disassociate themselves from the evil acts they themselves commit, relieving them of any feeling of personal responsibility. Fifth, when it was up to the zapper what voltage to use, only very rarely would he go above 150 volts, the point at which the one pretending to be shocked said he did not want to go on. It is very important to note that up to that point, and almost all of the subjects made it to that point, the zappy let out grunts of pain but did not ask for the experiment to stop. As a result, the one doing the zapping could quite reasonably say that the one being zapped had agreed to the arrangement, and up to that point was still a willing participant. Interestingly, of the few subjects who did not go all the way to the end, many of them stopped as soon as the zappy said he wanted out. This could be dubbed the libertarian line, since the zappy asked to be unstrapped for the zapper to continue anyway constitutes initiating violence against another, the exact thing libertarians oppose. Unfortunately, those who stop at the libertarian line are only a small minority of the population. As for the rest, the findings are disturbingly clear. Of the people who would, at the behest of authority, shock someone who claimingly said, I don't want to do this anymore, 
most would continue inflicting pain even if the victim was screaming in agony. Is this because most people are evil? No. It is because they have been conditioned to do as they are told and have been indoctrinated into the most dangerous superstition of all, the belief in authority. It should be noted that even Dr. Milgram could not escape his own indoctrination into the cult of authority worship. In passing, and with very little comment, even he opined that we cannot have a society without a structure of authority. He made a weak attempt to defend teaching obedience to authority by saying, Obedience is often rational. It makes good sense to follow doctor's orders, to obey traffic signs, and to clear the building when the police inform us of a bomb threat. Yet none of those examples actually requires or justifies the belief in authority. Despite the way people often talk, doctors do not give orders. They are authorities in the same sense that they are knowledgeable in the field of medicine, but not in the sense of having any right to rule. As for the other examples, the main reason to observe the rules of the road, or to leave a building when a bomb is in it, is not because obedience to authority is a virtue, but because the alternative is injury or death. If some non-authority in a theater pulled a bomb from under his seat and held it up for all to see, and said, A bomb, let's get out of here. Would everyone else stay where they were because the person wasn't perceived as an authority? Of course not. And if government repealed the law, saying which side of the road everyone should drive on, would people start randomly swerving around? Of course not. They would keep driving on the right side because they do not want to crash into each other. So, although even Dr. Milgram clung to the notion that the belief in authority is sometimes necessary and good, he gave no rational argument to support such an assertion. It is a testament to the strength of the myth of authority that even someone who had witnessed what Dr. Milgram had witnessed was still unable to completely give up the superstition. After Dr. Milgram publicized his findings, Many were shocked and dismayed by the extent to which normal people were willing to inflict pain or death upon innocent strangers when instructed to do so by a perceived authority. Similar tests performed since Dr. Milgram's experiments have yielded similar results, which continue to shock some people. However, the results really should not be surprising to anyone who has taken a look at how most human beings are raised. Teaching Blind Obedience The purported purpose of schools is to teach reading, writing, mathematics, and other academic fields of thought. But the message that institutions of education actually teach, far more effectively than any useful knowledge or skills, is the idea that subservience and blind obedience to authority are virtues. Simply consider the environment in which the majority of people spend most of their formative years, Year after year, students live in a world in which they receive approval, praise, and reward for being where authority tells them to be, when authority tells them to be there. They receive disapproval, reproach, and punishment for being anywhere else. This includes the fact that they are coerced into being in school to begin with. They receive approval, praise, and reward for doing what authority tells them to do, they receive disapproval, reproach, and punishment for doing anything else or for failing to do what authority tells them to do. They receive approval, praise, and reward for speaking when and how authority tells them to speak and receive disapproval, reproach, and punishment for speaking at any other time, in any other way, or about any other subject than what authority tells them to speak about or failing to speak when authority tells them to speak. They receive approval, praise, and reward for repeating back whatever ideas authority declares to be true and important, and receive disapproval, reproach, and punishment for disagreeing, verbally or on a written test, with the opinions of those claiming to be authority, or for thinking or writing about subjects other than what authority tells them to think or write about. They receive approval, praise, and reward for immediately telling authority about any problems or personal conflicts they encounter, and receive disapproval, reproach, and punishment for trying to solve any problems or settle any disagreements on their own. They receive approval, 
praise and reward for complying with whatever rules, however arbitrary, authority decides to impose upon them. They receive disapproval, reproach, and punishment for disobeying any such rules. These rules can be almost anything, including what clothes to wear, what hairstyles to have, what facial expressions to have, how to sit in a chair, what to have on a desk, what direction to face, and what words to use. They receive approval, praise, and reward for telling authority when other students disobeyed the rules. They receive disapproval, reproach, and punishment for failing to do so. The students clearly and immediately see that, in their world, there are two distinct classes of people. Masters, teachers, and subjects, students. And that the rules of proper behavior are drastically different for the two groups. The masters constantly do things they tell their subjects not to do. Boss people around, control others via threats, take property from others, etc. This constant and obvious double standard teaches the subjects that there is a very different standard of morality for the masters than there is for the subjects. The subjects must do whatever the masters tell them to, and only what the masters tell them to, while the masters can do pretty much anything they want. Not long ago, the masters would even routinely commit physical assault, i.e. corporal punishment, against subjects who did not quickly and unquestioningly do as they were told, while telling the subjects that it was completely unacceptable for them to ever use physical violence, even in self-defense, especially in self-defense against the masters. Thankfully, the use of regular, overt physical violence by teachers has become uncommon. However, though the force has become less obvious, the basic methods of authoritarian control and punishment remain. In the classroom setting, the authority can change the rules at will, can punish the entire group for what one student does, and can question or search any student or all students at any time. The authority is never seen as having an obligation to justify or explain to the students the rules it makes, or anything else it does, and it is of no concern to authority whether a student has a good reason to think that his time would be better spent being somewhere else, doing something else, or thinking about something else. The grades the student receives, the way he is treated, the signals he is sent, written, verbal, and otherwise, all depend on one factor, his ability and willingness to unquestioningly subvert his own desires, judgment, and decisions, to those of authority. If he does that, he is deemed good. If he does not, he is deemed bad. This method of indoctrination was not accidental. Schooling in the United States, in fact, in much of the world, was deliberately modeled after the Prussian system of education, which was designed with the express purpose of training people to be obedient tools of the ruling class easy to manage and quick to unthinkingly obey, especially for military purposes. As it was explained by Johann Fichte, one of the designers of the Prussian system, the goal of this method was to fashion the student in such a way that he simply cannot will otherwise than what those in authority want him to will. At the time, the system was openly admitted to be a means of psychologically enslaving the general populace to the will of the ruling class, and it continues to accomplish exactly that all over the world, including in the U.S. The reason most people do whatever authority tells them to, regardless of whether the command is moral or rational, is because it is exactly what they were trained to do. Everything about authoritarian schooling and authoritarian parenting, even the modern version that pretends to be caring and open-minded, continually hammers into the heads of the youngsters the notion that their success, their goodness, their very worth as human beings, is measured by how well they obey authority. Is it any wonder, then, that rather than applying logic to evidence to reach their own conclusions, most adults look for an authority to tell them what to think? Is it any wonder that when a man with a badge starts barking orders, most adults timidly obey without question?
even if they have done nothing wrong? Is it any wonder that most adults sheepishly submit to whatever interrogations and searches law enforcers want to inflict upon them? Is it any wonder that many adults will run to the nearest authority to solve any problem or settle any dispute? Is it any wonder that most adults will comply with any order, however irrational, unfair, or immoral it may be, if they imagine the one giving the order to be authority? Should any of this be surprising in light of the fact that nearly everyone went through many years of being deliberately trained to behave that way? Dr. Milgram's experiments made it quite clear that the kind of people produced even by our modern, supposedly enlightened society, even in the good old USA, that supposed bastion of liberty and justice, are, for the most part, callous, irresponsible, unthinking tools for whichever megalomaniac claims the right to rule? When the people are intentionally trained to humbly submit to the beast called authority, when they are taught that it is more important to obey than it is to judge, why should we be at all surprised at the extortion, oppression, terrorism, and mass murder that are committed just because a self-proclaimed authority commanded it? All of human history makes the deadly formula as plain as it could possibly be. A few evil rulers, plus many obedient subjects, equals widespread injustice and oppression. Making Monsters There should also be at least some mention here about the psychological study done at Stanford University in 1971, in which a sort of mock prison was set up, with dozens of students appointed as mock prisoners, and others as mock prison guards. The experiment had to be terminated early, after only six days, because those who had been given authority, the guards, had become shockingly callous, abusive, and sadistic toward their prisoners. It must be noted that the abuse committed by the guards even went beyond what they were told to do by those running the experiment, which was designed to humiliate and degrade the prisoners. This shows that the personal malice or sadistic tendencies in an individual is a significant contributing factor to such abuse, but that most people openly act out such tendencies only when given a position of authority that they believe gives them the permission to do so. The same phenomenon can be seen in all sorts of abuses of power, whether by a bureaucrat on a power trip, a soldier or police officer who likes to bully or assault civilians, or any other official who enjoys lording his power over others. These demonstrate that not only does the belief in authority allow basically good people to become tools of oppression and injustice, but it also brings out and dramatically amplifies whatever potential for malice, hatred, sadism, and love of domination those people may possess. The superstition of authority begins by making average people mere agents of evil which Arendt described as the banality of evil, but then goes on to make such people personally evil by convincing them that they have the right, or even the duty, to abuse and oppress other people. This can be seen in the behavior of soldiers, police, prosecutors, judges, even petty bureaucrats. Anyone whose job consists of harassing, extorting, threatening, coercing, and controlling decent people will, sooner or later, become at least callous, if not downright sadistic. One cannot continually act like a monster without eventually becoming one. Another important thing to note, as shown in countless examples of abuses of power, is that while the belief in authority can lead people to inflict harm on others, that same belief often cannot limit the extent to which the agents of authority hurt other people. For example, many individuals who would never oppress an innocent person on their own become police officers, thereby acquiring legal power to commit a certain degree of oppression. Yet, on many occasions, they end up going well beyond the legal oppression they are authorized to commit and become sadistic, power-happy monsters. The same is true, perhaps even more so, of soldiers. Perhaps the reason so many combat veterans end up being deeply emotionally traumatized is not so much the result of thinking about what they have witnessed as it is a result of thinking about what they themselves have done. 
The high rate of suicide among combat veterans supports this thesis. It makes little sense for someone to wish for his own death simply because he has seen something horrible. It makes a lot more sense for someone to wish for his own death because he himself has done something horrible, and has in fact become something horrible. The reason that the belief in authority can drive people to commit evil, but in the end cannot limit the evil they commit, is simple. Aside from whatever technical limitations there are supposed to be on an agent of authority, the primary concept that an enforcer is taught, and the primary concept that he must accept in order to do his job, is that, as a representative of authority, he is above the common folk, and has the moral right to forcibly control them. In short, he is taught that his badge, and his position, make him the rightful master of all the average people. Once he is convinced of that lie, it should be expected that he will despise the average citizen and treat him with contempt, in the same way and for the same reason that a slave owner would treat his slaves not as human beings, but as property, whose feelings and opinions matter no more than the feelings and opinions of the master's cattle or his furniture. It is very telling that many modern law enforcers quickly become angry, even violent, when an average citizen simply speaks to the officer as an equal, instead of assuming the tone and demeanor of a subjugated underling. Again, this reaction is precisely the same and has the same cause as the reaction a slave master would have to an uppity slave speaking to him as an equal. There are plenty of examples depicted in numerous police abuse videos on the internet of supposed representatives of authority going into a rage and resorting to open violence, simply because someone approached and spoke to them as one adult would speak to another, instead of speaking as a subject would speak to a master. The state mercenaries refer to this lack of groveling as someone having an attitude, in their eyes, someone treating them as mere mortals, as if they are on the same level as everyone else, amounts to showing disrespect for their alleged authority. Similarly. Anyone who does not consent to be detained, questioned, or searched by officers of the law is automatically perceived by the state mercenaries as some sort of troublemaker who has something to hide. Again, the real reason such lack of cooperation annoys authoritarian officers is because it amounts to people treating them as mere humans instead of treating them as superior beings, which is what they imagine themselves to be. If, for example, Someone was confronted by a stranger without a badge, who started interrogating the person in an obviously accusatory way, and asked to be allowed to search that person's pockets, his car, and his home. Not only would the person being accosted almost certainly refuse, but he would probably be outraged at the request. Of course you can't rummage through my stuff. Who do you think you are? But when strangers with badges make such requests, they are the ones offended when the targets of their intrusive, unjustified harassments, accusations and searches object and refuse to cooperate. Even when the officers know full well that the Fourth and Fifth Amendments to the U.S. Constitution specifically dictate that a person has no legal duty to answer questions or consent to searches, such lack of cooperation, i.e. failure to unquestioningly bow to the officer's every whim and request, is still seen by the police as a sign that the person must be some sort of criminal and enemy of the state. From the perspective of the law enforcers, only a despicable lowlife would ever treat a representative of authority in the same manner that he treats everyone else. Again, this is not how most people view the world before becoming officers of the law. In their authoritarian enforcement training, they are specifically taught to treat people as inferiors, to always try to gain control of everyone and everything the moment they arrive on scene, telling everyone where to go, what to do, when they can speak, and so on. They are not merely told that they have the right to boss everyone around, which would be dangerous enough. They are trained to believe that they must, in every situation, use whatever it takes, commands, intimidation, or outright violence, to get everyone present to bow to their authority and are taught that it is a crime for anyone to fail to unquestioningly bow to their will. Which, 
they characterize as disobeying a lawful order. It is also very significant that it is customary for police, as soon as they arrive at any scene, to make sure that no one else is armed with any sort of weapon, and to disarm anyone who is, before knowing anything else about who the people are or what is going on, and even regardless of whether the people are legally armed. The obvious purpose of this practice is to immediately create a huge imbalance of power, where only the law enforcers have the ability to forcibly impose their will on others. Imagine the arrogance required for an average citizen to arrive on some scene, unfamiliar with the situation and the people involved, and have his very first thought be, nobody is allowed to have a weapon except me. In short, Law enforcers are trained to be oppressive megalomaniacs and to treat everyone else as cattle. And human nature being what it is, everyone who routinely treats others that way, the way law enforcers are required to treat everyone else, will learn to despise others and treat them with contempt, disrespect, and hostility. However good or bad at heart an individual is to begin with, the way to bring out the worst in him is to give him authority over others. Author's Personal Note Several former police officers have personally told me that they quit the force after they noticed that the job and their supposed authority was slowly turning them into monsters. One of them, using that exact word. In fairness, many law officers make an effort to be nice guys and attempt to treat others with respect. But ultimately, they cannot treat others as equal and still be law enforcers. They can be friendly and even apologetic about it, e.g., sorry, but I'm going to have to ask you to... But their job still requires them to coercively control and extort others, and not just those who have actually harmed someone. A cop cannot treat others as equals without losing his job. Imagine an officer who would do traffic stops or search places or detain and interrogate people or use physical force against someone only in situations in which you would feel justified in doing such things yourself without any badge or law telling you you could. The same holds true of government investigators, prosecutors, and judges. Any government employee who refused to investigate prosecute or sentence someone for a victimless crime would quickly lose his job. It is not up to the agents of authority to decide which laws to enforce. If there are morally illegitimate laws, as there always are, all branches of authoritarian law enforcement are required to enforce them, thereby assisting in the extortion and oppression of innocent people. Even if much of what he does is aimed at actual criminals, those who have committed acts of aggression against others, every law enforcer, as a part of his job, is required to commit acts of aggression himself. There are some who do almost nothing other than initiating violence, such as tax collectors, narcotics agents, and immigration agents. This makes it literally impossible, in almost all cases, to work for government without committing immoral acts of aggression. Being a law enforcer and being a moral person are almost always mutually exclusive. However politely they may do the job, and despite the fact that they also go after actual criminals, the kind who have victims, law enforcers are always professional aggressors, subjugating the people to the will of the politicians by way of violence and the threat of violence. And anyone who does that, if he did not already have a certain degree of contempt and hatred for his fellow man, will almost certainly develop it. To put it another way, even the nicest, most friendly slave owner, if he continues to believe in the legitimacy of slavery and continues to practice it, will be committing evil and will inflict harm upon the people that he imagines to be his rightful property. And he will naturally develop a degree of contempt toward the victims of his aggression and will behave contemptuously toward them. The ability of the belief in authority to create harm, and the simultaneous inability of it to limit the harm, once the master imagines himself to have the right to rule over his inferiors, can be seen not only on an individual basis, but on a large scale as well. 
Most of the debates and writings that led up to the ratification of the U.S. Constitution focused on limiting the powers the federal government would have and on discussing all of the things that it was not allowed to do. The Bill of Rights, for example, is a list of things the U.S. government is constitutionally prohibited from doing. In fact, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments make it an open-ended list so that the federal government, in theory, was not supposed to do anything except what the Constitution specifically authorized it to do. Nonetheless, with the exception of the Third Amendment, the Bill of Rights also happened to be a list of rights that federal agents violate every single day, in every state in the Union. In reality, whether on an individual or national level, telling someone you have the right to rule others but only within these limits, will sooner or later result in that person dominating others without recognizing any limits to his power. In the long run, there is no such thing and can be no such thing as limited government, because once someone is accepted by others as a rightful master and believes himself to have the moral right to rule, there will be nothing and no one above him with the power to restrain him. Inside a government, a higher authority may choose to limit a lower authority. But logic and experience show that authoritarian hierarchy, taken as a whole, will never limit itself for long. Why would it? Why would a master ever put his own interests below the interests of his slaves? The Constitution is a perfect example of this. A piece of parchment which purported to grant very limited authority to certain people but which utterly failed to stop those people from going beyond those limits, creating something that eventually grew into the most powerful authoritarian empire in history. And the problem cannot be solved by appointing another set of masters, e.g. a court system, inside the same authoritarian structure, with the supposed purpose of enforcing limits upon the first set of masters. Separation of powers and checks and balances and due process are meaningless if the masters and those assigned to limit them are both part of the same authoritarian organization.